and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 2 tonight. Our reading will take us through the end of the chapter, and, uh, and then we'll be focusing on two aspects of Paul's teaching tonight about the Christian life and about who God is and how it is that God is at work in us. Uh, we're coming to the end of the first major section in 2 Corinthians where Paul's been defending his ministry, explaining himself and the things that have happened and why they've happened and what fruit has been born out of the fact that they happened. Uh, and we'll reach the conclusion of that tonight. And then beginning next week in chapter 8, uh, Paul's going to go on to other instruction to the Corinthians and so let me pray for us, and then we'll read our text for tonight. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithful ministry of Paul and your spirit who has preserved Paul's teaching, preserved your revelation for your people uh, throughout the ages and until Christ comes again. And so we pray as we turn our attention to it this evening, Father, we know that we are sinners indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that these two are at war with one another. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be at work in us by your Spirit, working through this Word uh, to put to death the principle of sin that remains in us, uh, to continually make us and remake us after the image of Christ. Uh, Father, that our heart would desire what you desire uh, and that we would be ready for Christ's return. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. 
thanks be to God. Uh, Well, two things I want to focus on this evening. The first is that our joy and comfort are rooted in God, not our circumstances. Our joy and comfort are rooted in God and not our circumstances. And second, that godly grief bears the fruit of repentance. Godly grief bears the fruit of repentance. First, our joy and comfort are rooted in God and not our circumstances. Look at the end of verse 4. It's kind of a thematic verse uh, in, in between sort of verses seven, 4 through 7. His main theme in these verses is his joy and his comfort in the midst of affliction. And, and it's summarized here at the end of verse 4, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. The sentence stands as as one of the two centers, if you will, of these verses, the other being but God, which we'll come to in a moment. Paul is very honest about his circumstances. Beginning again in verse 4 there at the end, he says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. He begins to unpack that, remind them of the specific circumstances that he's referring to. Verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul is being incredibly honest. He uses such powerful language here in verse 4 when he says, I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. The words that he uses here, uh, the filled with comfort, the expression that he uses in the original language is that I am filled to perfection with comfort. I'm, I'm filled to comfort Filled being the key idea here. Filled as in there can be no more. I am completely and utterly filled with comfort. So that the next verb he uses is all too appropriate. He says, I am overflowing with joy. Strong words to describe Paul's experience in the midst of affliction. But he doesn't do it by denying the affliction. He's he's very honest, using equally powerful language to describe the affliction that they suffer. Our bodies had no rest. We could stop right there. All of us know when we get tired, we are at our worst, right? In fact, you can get away with some pretty bad things if you just tell people, I'm sorry, I'm tired, right? Tired and hungry. These are the two circumstances where everybody goes, oh, well, of course, you're tired, right? Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn in the midst of their weakness, their bodies being without rest, being at a point where they are are potentially at their worst, not inclined to make the best decisions and to respond with the most godly responses. It's in these circumstances that they are afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul is desperately honest about his circumstances. In no way pretending that things are not difficult or that things are, are not difficult, in no way pretending that everything is wonderful, and yet he says almost enigmatically, I am filled with comfort, overflowing with joy. Whatever else we say here, we must recognize that Paul's joy and his comfort is not rooted in his circumstances. If it was, joy and comfort are the last things Paul would be telling us about right now. 
And we also recognize that his joy and comfort are not somehow in some weird masochistic way the result of his affliction. As if Paul enjoys this kind of affliction. And we've met people like this, haven't we? People who are scrapping for a fight, and if they're not at odds with everybody around them, they're not happy. They're looking for affliction. They're out there trying to stir things up. Paul is not this way. Paul is not finding joy in the affliction. He's finding joy despite the affliction. How do we know this? Because when we come to verse 6, he says, but God who comforts the downcast. You see, Paul has as his foundation, uh, if I can double the metaphor, a foundation into which the roots of his, his life are sunk in God's character. Our joy and comfort are rooted in God. A God who does not change and whose character does not change. Paul has this firm conviction of comfort and joy, and as such, he rejoices, twice using the verb to tell us that his response to these things is not only to experience joy and to experience comfort, but therefore to rejoice. The source of his joy is God. Paul doesn't say, but God made all those hard things go away. Verse 6, but God... No, it's into the midst of these circumstances that God brings comfort. God giving comfort to the downcast isn't merely something God did in this instance, but it's His character as well. And Paul communicates this. Look at verse 6 at how he frames this. He doesn't say merely, but God comforted us. He says, but God who comforts the downcast. But God What God? The God whose character is such that what He does all the time is comfort the downcast. The comfort that Paul gets from God is not a special comfort that only Paul got or that only the apostles enjoyed or that we might enjoy occasionally in a sort of supernatural way if God feels like providing it. It is God's character It is in his nature to comfort the downcast. But God, who comforts the downcast. It's a a general truth Paul is speaking about this God. And then he tells us God acted in accordance with his nature. But God, who comforts the downcast. That God, he comforted us by the coming of Titus. Our joy and comfort are rooted in God and in His character and in the fact that He is a God who regularly, according to that character, comforts the downcast. He's in the habit of comforting the downcast. This is a, an important truth for us. Uh, when, when we are in the midst of affliction, we not only are, are struggling, the affliction is not only hard, And we may be inclined to cry out in despair, to begin to wonder where God is, to begin to wonder if God knows and why God doesn't answer. And quite often, our focus in all of that is on the circumstances. How do we know God hasn't answered? Because the circumstances haven't gone away. 
Why would we question whether God is good in the midst of these circumstances? Because the circumstances haven't gone away. And what Paul models for us here and calls us to is a recognition that whether or not God hears, whether or not God acts, has nothing to do with whether or not the circumstances change. It's in the midst of those circumstances that God gives comfort. And listen, this is a, this is a, a valuable truth for us to know about our God. That when you cry out to God in the midst of affliction, He's not just there, but He is, by, by His character, a God who comforts. That's who, who we call out to. Notice also that God provides comfort by the very ordinary arrival of Titus. God certainly can, and at times does, in a sort of private way, by means of the Spirit, perhaps at work in the Word as you read your Bible or you pray, provide you with comfort. But quite often, and perhaps even most of the time, the way that God provides this comfort is He sends someone. We are the means of comfort to one another that God uses. As those who mourn, look for these ordinary ways in which God comforts. Don't look for your circumstances to change. Look for the ways that God is providing comfort in the midst of your circumstances. To use what's often perhaps used in a trite way, count your blessings. Listen for those who are around you who would give good news to you. Don't hear the encouragement of a brother or sister in Christ that God is a God who comforts and say, yeah, 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 more systematic theology. I, I, yeah, that's God. That's, I hear that. I don't feel it. Recognize the ways that God gives comfort to His people. Titus arrives here in our verses with good news. He says in verse 6 again, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now listen, there was nothing supernatural about the coming of Titus. He got on a boat. He disembarked. Paul was there to receive him. People do it every day. Titus wasn't an angel. He wasn't a disembodied voice of God. He was just a partner in ministry. And he was the means by which God comforts Paul in these circumstances. Don't disregard the small, quiet, ordinary ways that God gives comfort to us in the midst of difficult circumstances. As those who mourn, look for these ordinary ways in which God comforts. And as those who rejoice, remember that you are often the means by which God gives comfort. I don't know what Titus thought. I don't know if Titus understood all of this really well and he knew Paul really well and he was just dying to arrive at Corinth. Uh, or, I apologize, wherever it was that he met Paul. Paul, I don't think, is in Corinth at this point because Titus is coming from Corinth. But, but was Titus just buzzing to, to meet Paul because he understood what a source of joy and comfort he was going to be to Paul in the midst of difficult circumstances? He may not have thought of it at all. He may have just thought, well, I've got some good news. I've got some good news. I'm looking forward to telling Paul 
about the good news from Corinth. And yet in the telling of that good news, Paul finds comfort and joy that he desperately needs in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because our joy and comfort are rooted in God and His character, we don't need to be tossed about by our circumstances. Those circumstances are real, absolutely, and denying them would be a denial of the truth. We were not uh, told to deny them. We shouldn't deny them. And they may be hard circumstances. Like Paul, we don't need to pretend nothing is wrong, but in the midst of the storm, God is the refuge that preserves us without fail. Look to God for comfort and joy and acknowledge His provision by rejoicing. Second, this evening, godly grief bears the fruit of repentance. We're going to have to move quickly, so, uh, so hang on. We're in verses 8 through 11. Godly grief bears the fruit of repentance. Look at what Paul says. He makes a distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief leads to death, produces death. What is the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Worldly grief is being sorry for getting caught. Worldly grief is, is really regret for the circumstances that come as a result of our sinful actions, the consequences of the action. Worldly grief uh, is... Maybe the determination to do the right thing from now on because you think God will love you more. That's a, a form of worldly grief. Instead, we ought to rest in Christ. When we become aware of our sins, grief is an appropriate response. That's godly grief. We'll talk about that next. Worldly grief makes the mistake of, of discovering that we've sinned moving past the repentance and simply determining that we're going to do better. Moving past the forgiveness and the rest that is ours in Christ and simply determining to dig in and try harder. It's a worldly grief and it's a dangerous worldly grief because we, we mistake it for godly grief. I sinned, I did wrong, I know I did wrong, I feel bad about it, now I'm going to do better. And there's no gospel in that grief. There's no rest in that grief. Godly grief, on the other hand, fully admits the error. It acknowledges the wrong and seeks to make it right. It turns from sin because it's an offense against God whom we love and who loves us. Godly grief is only for a little while. I love the way we, we get the, the view into Paul's heart here. He sounds like he's contradicting himself, but uh, those of us perhaps who uh, are, are parents or have had difficult relationships with friends where we've had to say hard things will recognize the struggle that Paul is experiencing here. He says, verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Is Paul grieved or isn't he grieved that he grieved them? 
Does he regret it or not? Well, he regrets it in as much as he takes no joy in their grief. But he does not regret it in as much as their grief led. It was a godly grief and led to repentance. And he celebrates the repentance and recognizes that the grief that led them to that repentance was necessary. Godly grief bears the fruit of repentance. One more thing here on that before I move on. He says there at the end of verse 8, For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. And Paul's not being critical when he says it, is he? It's clear in the context that being grieved for a little while was appropriate. There's another way in which our grief goes wrong, and that's when we refuse to be comforted. When we are grieved by our sin and refuse to be comforted. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis captures this well in one of the conversations in a little book he wrote uh, called uh, The Great Divorce where we have sinned and we mourn, we grieve and hate that sin and we mourn the fact that we did it and we, we repent of it, but we refuse to accept God's forgiveness. And we believe we have to continue to, to whip ourselves, spiritually speaking, to punish ourselves. We are not allowed to receive the comfort that comes from repentance. We have to continually hang our head and... and regret the thing that we did. That is not appropriate. By all means, we're going to always, as as often as this comes up, we're going to have to look back on it and say, yes, that was wrong. And I'm certainly always, ever looking back to that, I, I find that shameful that it happened. But listen, brothers and sisters, this is radical. God says to us in His Word that when we are grieved by our sin and we repent that there is relief in the repentance. They were grieved for a little while. And that was appropriate. Let me finish with a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, Godly grief is necessary. It's necessary in our lives. It's necessary for us at times, as Paul did for the Corinthians, to grieve brothers and sisters in Christ. To say to them, brother, sister, this is sin. Sometimes that's appropriate in relationships just generally with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not necessarily in a position of authority over one another, but you can say to one another, this was sin. It's appropriate at times, parents, to to say to your children, this was sin. To lead them into a godly grief that produces repentance. It's necessary at times, for the elders of the church to grieve the members of the church, to say to them this was wrong, to say hard things, as Paul has admitted that he did in his previous letter. I made you grieve with my letter, he says, but he doesn't repent of of doing this. It was right and it was necessary. We have a responsibility to grieve one another in this way, gently, in love. And we have a responsibility when these things are brought to our attention to be grieved by them. This is a natural, healthy 
quality in the life of a church and a Christian family and among brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't mistake worldly grief for godly grief. Repent, pursue reconciliation, rest in God's grace and forgiveness, and pursue hard after holiness for the love of God. Let's pray.